we're going to jump into our study today, you might have seen that we're going to get through a titanic two verses today, two whole verses. That's right, we're going to move at breakneck speed, but we're going slow because it's going to be that good, the stuff we're going to look at today. We're going to take a look at the issue of conceit and how it affects our lives. And then we're gonna talk about how to deal with the brother or sister who is caught up in a sin or wrong belief and is headed in the wrong direction. And so be open to what the Holy Spirit wants to show you, what he wants to do in you as we go through the word today. I believe it's gonna be helpful, it's gonna be challenging, it's gonna be encouraging, and it's gonna bring clarity to an issue that I think a lot of believers struggle with. So we're gonna start by taking a look at that final verse, verse 26 of chapter five of Galatians. Paul says this, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now the original Greek word that's used there for conceited means vainglorious or empty of honor. In other words, conceit comes from a place of deep insecurity within us that makes us feel like we're not getting the glory or the honor that we deserve. And so we become driven by the desire to prove our worth to ourselves and to others. And how do we measure our worth? Well, we do it by comparing ourselves to others. You see, when I feel better than someone else in an area of my life, my insecurity simmers down. But when I feel worse than someone else in an area of my life, my insecurity flares up. And no matter how well we hide it, this is how our flesh is wired. This is the default setting of our hearts outside of the gospel that allows us to walk a different way, to walk in the spirit. So we're gonna unpack this some more, but write this down if you didn't do it already. Conceit comes from a place of insecurity that causes us to feel like we're not getting the glory we deserve. It creates an urge in us to prove our worth, which we pursue by comparing ourselves to others. We could do a whole sermon just on that one explanation there of conceit. And how does Paul say conceit will affect our relationships? He says, well, we'll be provoking one another. We'll be envying one another. And again, in the original Greek, that word provoking means challenging someone to a contest. And you know what envying means. Envying is wanting what someone else has, but envying is also wanting someone else not to have it as well. When we think we're superior to someone, we want to compete with them because we want to flaunt, we want to dwell in, we want to enjoy our perceived superiority. When we think we're inferior to someone, We envy them. So we provoke people, we wanna compete with people we think we're superior to, and then we envy people that we feel inferior to. Now get this, because it's profound. Paul is saying that both the superiority and the inferiority complexes that we can have are both forms of conceit, because both people, both sides of that coin, are self-absorbed. Both people are self-absorbed. Both people are more concerned with how other people make them look and feel than they are with how they make other people look and feel. The superiority complex and the inferiority complex both try to gain a feeling or a sense of worth 
by competing with others at the expense of others. They both seek an identity by beating others so that they can feel superior to them. The only real difference is that the person with the inferiority complex has lost the game and now lives in the place of envy toward those they feel have won the game. Whereas the person with the superiority complex feels like they're winning right now, but has to constantly compare themselves against others to check if they're still winning, if they still matter, if they still have worth. So write this down. Superiority and inferiority complexes are both forms of conceit because they both reflect self-absorption. They both reflect self-absorption. And if we're honest, most of us are both provoking and envying at the same time in different areas of our lives. Even though they seem different, they're both forms of the same thing. They're both forms of conceit, of self-absorption. Rick Warren put it perfectly when he pointed out that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Low self-esteem is not biblical humility, it's just as conceited as pride because in both forms, low self-esteem and a superiority complex, both things are absorption with self, total obsession with self. So Paul is basically saying in verse 26, he's saying don't let your hunger for significance, to feel like you matter in life, don't let that cause you to despise and envy and compete with people. Don't let it do that to you. Now as a side note, I was just reading this week, what we all know by now that the evidence is in, study after study after study, that social media makes these issues so much worse. Likes and retweets and the like, understand what they are, this is the problem. Those things are literally a scoring system with numbers to tell us whether or not our lives, thoughts, and opinions have value to other people. We actually figured out a way to put a number on that. And that's why Facebook right now is trying to experiment with getting rid of the whole likes thing because the data is conclusive that social media is negatively affecting people's emotional health on a catastrophic scale. And the reason is simple, it feeds into our desire to compare ourselves to one another. Whether it's a superiority complex or an inferiority complex, social media feeds both and it flares up that self-absorption. What do people think of me? Who am I better than? Who am I more popular than? Who am I more interesting than? And the more self-absorbed you are, here's the problem, the more miserable you'll be. And again, this is a whole message in a sentence right here because, and you should tell your kids this too, you are not worth being obsessed with. You are not worth being obsessed with. God is, but you are not. And the more obsessed you are with yourself, the more miserable you will be. Because none of us are all that great. So for yourself and your kids, I would just urge you to be very careful and cognizant about the way that social media empowers self-absorption and sort of empowers that side of us that wants to compete with people. 
The gospel, on the other hand, completely changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way that we see and relate to other people too because the gospel frees us from comparing ourselves against others, but the gospel is unique because it doesn't make us overconfident in ourselves or hateful of ourselves. It makes us both bold and humble at the same time. Only the gospel truly addresses the issue of vain glory, of self-absorption. Because to the degree that I'm still functionally earning my worth through performance, or as Paul would say, my works. So in other words, to the degree that I find all my worth by what I do, how I compare to other people, how I score, to that same degree, I will find myself either operating from a place of inferiority or superiority all the time. Why? Because if I'm saved by works, I can either be confident but not humble because I think I'm better than people or I can be humble but not confident because I think I'm inferior to people. And I'll swing back and forth between the two based on how I think I'm doing day by day, moment by moment. But the gospel makes something new, a completely new type of self-image and identity. The gospel makes me humble because no matter who I compare myself to, I'm still a sinner who was saved by grace. I, I had no hope unless Jesus died for me. So the gospel keeps me humble. I'm not better than anybody. But the gospel also makes me confident because it says that I'm loved and valued and cared for and provided for by the God who made the universe. And he valued me with the life of his son. He loved me before I was even born. So it gives me that confidence as well. So write this down. Only the gospel can make us both humble and confident at the same time. Only the gospel can make us both humble and confident at the same time. It's a better way to go through life. It's the better way for us to view ourselves. And we have to remind ourselves of our identity in Christ all the time in order to walk in it, in order to stand in it. We have to constantly realign our thinking to get in line with the reality of who we are in Christ. You see, if I find myself being defensive with someone or, or overcombative with someone or getting really tense with someone because I'm wrestling with a sense of inferiority, I have to slow down and remind myself that my value doesn't come from what they think of me, it comes from what Jesus thinks of me, and he loves me. And on the flip side, if I find myself looking down on someone, or feeling superior to someone, I have to remind myself, man I am, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am just as undeserving of the love of God as they are. And Jesus loves them just as much as he loves me. We have to remind ourselves of these things all the time. In chapter five, Paul has laid out two ways that we can respond to the freedom of the gospel wrongly and lose our freedom in the process, fail to stand in it. Firstly, he said that we can add rules to the gospel to try and make us live rightly. And we'd call that moralism. Then secondly, he says we can abuse the grace of God. We can abuse the freedom we have by rejecting all rules and just doing what we want, and we'd call that hedonism. Both of these responses are, are driven by conceit, because it's both about wanting to do what you want and you being in control, and they both poison our relationships, because the moralist desperately needs others to approve of them or to rely on them 
in order to make them feel like they have worth. Which means that all their relationships are essentially selfish because the moralist views other people as existing to validate them and make them feel like they matter. And relationships go south anytime they feel like the other person isn't doing enough of that for them. The hedonist shows their conceit in their complete lack of commitment. They view relationships and people as existing solely to be used for their pleasure or satisfaction. So if the relationship ever requires significant sacrifice, they just bail because they were only ever in it for themselves. Let's talk about just a couple of examples of the moralist and the hedonist here because we could say, for example, when it comes to relating to one's parents, if you get off on the side of moralism, you'll think, way, way, way too much about your parents because you'll be overly concerned with pleasing them, you'll crave their approval all the time, or you'll be mad at them and you'll be thinking about them all the time because you'll be obsessed with how you feel like they neglected you or didn't affirm you enough and in the process ruined your life. Because you're looking at them for that validation that you're winning in life. Whereas on the flip side, hedonism means that you wouldn't think about your parents, you wouldn't call your parents, wouldn't care about them at all unless it suited you or maybe if you needed some money. When it comes to sexual relationships, moralism will make a person either view sex as as evil and they'll crave it intensely though at the same time because they're looking at it as a way to fill a void in their life that only God's spirit can. Whereas the hedonist probably won't actually be as obsessed with sex but it'll be because they only view it as a pleasurable biological act. But the hedonist only holds that view because they've given up on the idea that they could actually have a relationship where there's genuine love, acceptance, sacrifice, and commitment. And so they never experience a truly fulfilling relationship. They don't actually experience the freedom of the gospel in that area of their life. But the gospel is always puts us on a different better path. In the gospel, sex is part of God's good creation and sexuality is meant to reflect the the self-giving nature of Jesus who gave himself for us completely. In God's design for sex, if we give ourselves to someone sexually, we're also supposed to give ourselves to them in, in every other way. Legally, financially, socially, personally. God's design is that sex would only happen in a totally committed permanent relationship that we would call marriage. And while no marriage is perfect, because every marriage I've ever encountered is made up of two sinners, that ideal can still be somewhat realized in a gospel-centered marriage. So if we live as as a moralist or a hedonist, we won't actually enjoy healthy relationships because we'll either use people for our own pleasure and satisfaction or we'll use people to validate us. And if they're no longer satisfying or pleasurable, we'll bail on them so we'll never have any really deep connections. Or if we feel like they're not validating us enough, we'll bail on the relationship because we were just using them for validation. God's way is better, the gospel is better. Getting your self-worth from who you are in Christ. Getting your identity in him. And if you see yourself in either of those, in the moralist or the hedonist, I would just wanna let you know that, that God wants to free you from that. And he wants you to have healthy relationships. But you have to recognize that in yourself. It doesn't work this way. You can't say, oh, I recognize that in my spouse. You can't do that. 
There's nothing you can do about that. You've got to recognize it in yourself and ask the Lord to heal you and begin finding your identity in God, growing in your relationship with him. And the incredible thing is as you find yourself getting your identity in God, all your relationships automatically begin to become better because you're not just trying to get things from people. So there's not the same pressure on all of those relationships. They're not as combustible. Now changing gears, there was a lot there and and there's gonna be a a lot packed into this message and I would just encourage you to really think on this stuff even as we worship after the message but throughout the week, take the time in your own devotional time to just ask the Lord, God, am I I leaning in one of these directions? In the direction of moralism or hedonism? Is, Is there something that's affecting my relationships in an unhealthy way that you want to free me from. Give, give the Lord that freedom this week to speak to you. So as we change gears and move into chapter six now, Paul is going to address an issue that still comes up all the time in churches and families and friendships. And it's an issue that we still have a really hard time with if we're honest. It's this, what do we do with the brother or sister who has fallen into sin? Paul's going to describe one scenario here in Galatians 6.1, but the Bible actually gives us three different scenarios. And we have to understand the difference between each or we can end up responding the wrong way. So we'll look at the scenario that Paul gives us here in Galatians 6 and then we'll look at the other two places in scripture as well. That's why we're only gonna get through two verses in Galatians today. And we'll hopefully gain some clarity as we do. So I would underline all of Galatians 6.1. It says this, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now the Greek word used there for trespass refers to a lapse. We might also call it a blunder or a, or a slip up. So Paul is referring to the believer here who isn't intentionally pursuing sin but finds themselves overwhelmed by some sin due to a dumb mistake or, or ignorance. Picture someone standing knee deep in the ocean And if you know anything about the ocean, if you've been to Hawaii, one of the big rules of ocean safety is you never turn your back on the ocean. So imagine someone standing in knee-deep water, they turn their back to the ocean like an idiot, and this enormous wave comes and just completely knocks them over. And, And that would be the sort of picture here. A good example might be somebody who foolishly falls catastrophically into debt as a result of making a series of just really dumb decisions due to ignorance about money and credit card and interest rates and only recognizing the problem when things get really, really bad. That's the sort of stuff we're talking about here. The word overtaken refers to the way that an animal overtakes its prey and begins to devour it like a wolf chasing down an injured deer. We're we're talking about a believer who's been wounded because of his own blunder And now the enemy has taken advantage of their vulnerable state and has begun to devour them and overwhelm them. So write this down, this is what we'll call it. Galatians 6.1 refers to the blundering believer. We'll call him the blundering believer. Paul says that those of us who are walking in the spirit, those of us who are walking with the Lord, we should restore a person like this in a spirit of gentleness. And I want us to recognize that, that Paul says restoration is the goal in this situation. 
What we're hoping for, what we're praying for, what we're endeavoring to work toward is their restoration back to the place of spiritual health and ideally health in every other area of their life. That word restore means to mend or set a broken bone. That's the idea. And Paul says we're to do it all in a spirit of gentleness. And I really appreciate Paul because he doesn't just stop there. Because Paul understands that sometimes we're not that bright. And sometimes we use the term gentleness very liberally, adding our own interpretation, you know. Were you gentle with them? I was gentle-ish. I was gentle enough. So Paul gives us the perspective that we need in order to be the kind of gentle that he's actually talking about. He says, let me put it this way, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So thinking about how you would want to be treated if you were the blundering brother or sister. Treat them like that because it easily could be you next time. And suddenly it becomes a whole lot clearer what gentleness actually looks like. Paul and the scriptures don't allow us to use truthfulness as an excuse to neglect gentleness. The word tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He told the truth plainly, but he was always motivated by love. So the people who say you're not loving if you tell them the truth, that's not what the Bible says. But the people who also say, well, you just gotta tell them the truth, and if they don't like it, they just gotta deal with it, just give it to them straight. If they can't handle it, that's their problem. That's not what the Bible says either. It says you tell them the truth in a clear, plain way, And you do it making sure that you're motivated by love. You do it the way that you would want someone to do it for you. Basically, it's the inflated version of the right thing to do is tell someone they got a booger hanging out of their nose. How would you want them to do it? Would you want them to yell it across the sanctuary? Or would you want to be like, hey man, I need to let you know there's a situation here. Paul says, think about how you would want someone to do it for you. And love doesn't do what is least offensive. That's not how you measure it. Love doesn't try to say, well, you know, gentleness is going to be, I'm going to make it seem like what they're doing is not really that big of a deal. That's how I'll be gentle. Yeah, I know you're cheating on your spouse, but you know, we've all got hang-ups. I left the oven on just this week. So it's not about being less offensive by trying to pretend it's not a big deal. Love does what is best for the other person. So we don't say, man, if I'm successful, they won't be offended. We say, if I do what's best for them, then I'll be successful. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I put it on your outline, he said, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. In other words, Paul was saying, listen, all sins come from a relatively small group of motivations, which is why we're all vulnerable to sin. So don't ever think, well, well, that could never happen to me. I would never do that. I'll never find myself in that situation. I'm too mature for that. Because as Jeremiah said, what the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I used to have a pastor who would tell me, he'd be like, listen, he's like, you're not more righteous than David. You're not wiser than Solomon. You go through all these guys in the Bible and they all made epic mistakes. So don't ever think that you're somehow greater than all the people who have made mistakes that have come in the faith before. But praise God, Paul goes on to remind the Corinthians of this promise. He says, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape 
that you may be able to bear it. It's a wonderful promise. Now, when Paul says that we're to be gentle with the blundering believer as we would have others be gentle with us in the same situation, here's the thing. When he says the way that you would want other people to treat you, he's making the assumption that you're a believer who wants to walk with Jesus. So there's not the option there for us to say, well, if it happened to me, I would want the other person to just shut up about it and leave me alone. That's not what he's talking about. He's making the assumption that you're a believer who wants to walk with the Lord. And the way that we would want someone to treat us in that situation is we would want them to come to us one-on-one, discreetly, not judgmentally, not with a sense of superiority and say, hey, I love you. And because I love you, I gotta let you know this. I'm not even looking forward to this conversation, but I love you too much to let you keep heading in this direction because I think it's gonna do some real damage to your life and to your family and to your relationship. So I've gotta ask you, what you're doing because it's not what the Bible says you should be doing. I love you enough to do that. That's what we would want if we love the Lord and if we wanna walk in the spirit. In fact, one of the ways you know that you're dealing with a blundering believer, one of the ways you know they're a blundering believer is that they'll welcome and receive the correction that's offered by the church. You see, if they don't receive it, if they reject it, then they're not a blundering believer. There's something else. They're choosing to do it intentionally. And that's a very different type of scenario that we're gonna talk about in just a moment. But if they're a blundering believer, they're gonna welcome the help. They're gonna say, oh yeah, man, my life is like a train wreck right now. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where to start. Like any help would be appreciated. That's gonna be the response of the blundering believer. Our heart and our motivations will be right if we remember that we could be the one overcome by sin next time. And if we remember that we should treat others the way that we would wanna be treated in the same situation. But there's another question we should ask ourselves in order to check our hearts before we go to the blundering believer in love. It should be this question, are we willing to help? Are we willing to help? If they say, man, you know, I I wanna get out of this, but I, I could just really use someone to talk to and pray with during the week as I'm dealing with this discouragement. Are we willing to make time to meet with them once a week? just open the word together and pray together? Or are we gonna say, well, I'm kind of booked as it is. Life's just a little too busy. Are we willing to do what we can in order to help them? Are we willing to be like Jesus who, when he smelled stinky feet, got down on his knees and washed them? Are we willing to get on our knees and pray for them? Are we willing to wash them in the water of the word by meeting with them and encouraging them with the scriptures? Or are we just saying, no, here, here's the thing, I... I just have the ministry of detecting stinky feet. It's just what I can do because that's not one of the spiritual gifts that's listed in the Bible. The way of the scriptures is to help the brother or sister who's been overtaken by a sin and wants help. So if we're not willing to help, we're not the one who's called to confront. Now, scenario number two, scenario number two, if you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the person who's not a blundering believer, but we're going to call them a boasting backslider. You see, starting in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes about this situation and he says, it is actually reported 
that there is sexual immorality among you in the church, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So write this down and we'll talk about it. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 7 refers to the boasting backslider. The boasting backslider. Scenario number two. In the church at Corinth at the time, man, their church was like an HBO show if you read the book of Corinthians. Unbelievable. In the church at Corinth at the time, there was a man who was sexually involved with his mother or his mother-in-law, and Paul says, guys, you're, you're allowing this to happen in your congregation. The guy is boasting about what he's doing, and instead of correcting him, you're all boasting about how gracious you are for allowing him to do this. You're saying, oh, yes, you know, we're a church based on grace. Everyone's at a different place in their journey and we're just welcoming and who are we to judge? Jesus loves everybody. In fact, let me tell you how gracious we are. There's a guy in our church sleeping with his mom. We don't make a big deal about it. This is Grace Tabernacle, baby. And so Paul says, what are you doing? This is evil, you shouldn't be putting up with this because this compromise is gonna spread through your whole congregation like yeast spreading through a whole loaf of bread as it bakes. The guy Paul is talking about is intentionally, unrepentantly sinning and he's even bragging about it. Yeah, I'm doing it, got no intention of changing. So what are we as the church and as individuals to do with the brother or sister who's behaving this way? What's the biblical response? Well, firstly, just notice, Paul is crystal clear. This is not a denominational interpretation issue. Paul is crystal clear that it must not be tolerated in the church. In other words, here's what that means. If you claim to be a Christian and you wanna be part of the church family, uh, this is gonna be mind-blowing. Let me say this again. If you claim to be a Christian and you wanna be part of a church family, are you ready for this? You have to actually want to live like a Christian. I know, right? How offensive. And, and, I, and I point this out all the time because our culture holds the church to an impossible standard. If we don't act like Jesus, then the culture says we're what? Well, we're hypocrites. But if we try to actually get together as the church and say, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to hold each other accountable to actually live kind of like Jesus lived. That's going to be our goal. Then society says, oh, you guys are so judgmental in that church. I heard there was a person who came to your church and you told them that they had to leave because they weren't living a certain way. And you say, so if we don't live like Jesus did, then we're hypocrites. But if we hold each other accountable to live like Jesus, then we're judgmental. So you can't win either way in the eyes of society? You know, if I applied to work for Greenpeace, but then, you know, while I was on the boat down uh, near the South Pole, it came out, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I mentioned it, but 
I'm super pro whaling. Like, like really <laughs> just in favor of it, you know, just as many of them as we can harpoon. Yep, I'm all about it. Let's kill all the whales. Let's do it. Nobody, not on that boat, but nobody in our society would say, well, Greenpeace should put up with that, right? Tolerance, baby. They would all say, well, of course you can't work for Greenpeace if you're not on board with the mission of Greenpeace. That's crazy. Or if I went to you know, a local indigenous people's group and I said, I, um, I would like to apply to be on the board of your band. Uh, I'd love to do that. And they said, um, I, I can't help noticing that, uh, how do I put this, um, ethnically, uh, you look like you might not be um, part of our tribe. And I said, I'm, I'm not. I'm not at all. Is that a problem? They, they would look at me and they would say, are you, are you out of your mind? Well, of course, you, you have to actually be part of our tribe in order to be in our tribe. But when the church says, well, in order to call yourself a Christian and to be a part of our church family, you have to actually be a Christian? Society says that's bigoted. That is closed-minded. That is judgmental. That is unacceptable. That's not what the church is supposed to be. It makes no sense. And society doesn't apply that standard to any other organization. They understand with every other organization, you have to be on board with the mission. You have to belong to that organization if you actually want to be a part of it. You have to believe in what they're doing. You have to be in agreement with it. But with the church, society says there's a different standard. That's why it is so important that the church never be motivated by a desire to have the approval or favor of the culture. The Bible's clear that the church is to be motivated by a desire for the approval and favor of Jesus. Paul makes it clear that if you claim to be a Christian and you want to be part of a church family, then you have to actually want to live like a Christian. And apparently that was something this man in Corinth had no interest in. He's like, I like the meetings. I like the love feasts. I, li I like the potlucks. There's always good food there. Everyone here is nice, but I've got no intention of living like a Christian. But I sure do like you people. And let me be clear that if someone is attending church services and they're saying, I'm not a believer yet. I'm just checking this out. I'm not calling myself a Christian. That person's not under any obligation to live like a believer. But the person who says, I am a Christian, the person who takes the name of Jesus, the name of Christ, is expected to live like a follower of Jesus. If you don't want to live like that, you can't take that title. If you don't want to be a little Christ, is what the word literally means, then you can't call yourself a Christian. Because that's what it means. This issue threatened the whole church because by not dealing with this sin, the church was endorsing this sin. And Paul says, listen, your laissez-faire attitude towards this man's sin is gonna spread through your whole congregation. Compromise is gonna take a hold of your church. People are gonna stop taking it seriously, following Jesus, unless you deal with it. It's about more than this one person. It's about the health of the whole congregation. So if he won't repent, Paul says he has to go. Not only for the health of the church, but for his own spiritual health. Because if a person won't receive correction and arrogantly persists in their sin, Paul says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction 
of the flesh. Do not be confused. Paul is saying this type of person must be excommunicated. They must be cut off from the church body and told that they can only return if they're repentant. And when I say cut off, let me be clear what Paul is talking about. You cannot come to church. You cannot come to small group. And it means we as the church, we're agreeing, you're not gonna have this guy over to your house for dinner. You're not gonna come and undercut the elders of the church, the leadership of the church, and try and make it seem like, yeah, I know the church leaders are really harsh, but I'm loving, so I'll still meet with you and have coffee with you and have lunch with you and check on you. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's saying all contact with anyone who is a part of the church is cut off. He is cut off from the fellowship of the church completely. And this should all be shocking to most of us in the modern church because us modern churches love to market our churches with slogans like everyone is welcome, don't we? Everyone is welcome at our church. But based on the Bible, according to Paul, we shouldn't actually make that claim because there is a person who, according to the scriptures, is not welcome in the church. The person who identifies as a believer but refuses to repent of their sin, even when confronted by the church. That person is not welcome in the church. Now what does Paul mean when he says to excommunicate this person for the destruction of the flesh? It's a scary sounding phrase. He means this, if they wanna live in the flesh, if they're giving themselves over to the desires of the flesh, He's saying then let them have as much of it as they want. Let them leave those who want to walk in the spirit, go out into the world and get their fill. But they are not to be allowed to enjoy the peace and joy of being around believers. They're not allowed to enjoy the kindness and compassion of believers. They're not allowed to enjoy the wisdom and help of the word, the beauty of worship, the encouragement, the care of the church family. Because the goal is to help them realize as quickly as possible the difference between being around those who love the Lord and those who don't. We're to let them live in the world until they're sick of their own sin, till they realize how empty it is, till they realize how most people are just using them and they come to their senses and then when they're ready to repent, they're to be welcomed back into the church and restored. In the States, there was a, a series of clinics for alcoholics who used to have a practice that is, is now illegal, but it worked incredibly well. When someone would come to them for rehab as an alcoholic, for the first three days, they would just let them have as much alcohol as they want. They would literally be locked in a room that had one bathroom, and they would leave them there for three days, and the room was stocked with every kind of alcohol under the sun. They just get themselves completely trashed for three straight days until they were so sick of it, they didn't want to have another drink. And then they would say, okay, now you're ready to begin your rehabilitation. Now you're ready. Unsurprisingly, that's now illegal. But it was incredibly, incredibly effective. And that's kind of the idea here. What really helps us understand this, though, because you might be a believer and you might be like, Jeff, that, that still sounds harsh. It is harsh, but we're not playing games here. We're not playing games. We're not trying to make people feel good. The goal isn't to make people not be offended. The goal is to do what is best for them. And I think what will help us understand this 
is to see the parallels that play out in the famous parable Jesus told that's known as the parable of the prodigal son. And, and I want to just challenge you to think about that parable from the angle of what Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And think about the prodigal son as the unrepentant brother or sister who has to be excommunicated from the church. And that, now see the parallels. The prodigal son wanted to spend his inheritance early on wine, woman, partying, and the like. Basically, he wanted to go all in on indulging his fleshly desires. And so what did his father say? His father said, okay, go ahead, go for it. But notice this, if you think about the parable, the father did not say, why don't you just stay at home and do those things here? The son had to leave the father's house in order to pursue that type of living. He could not pursue it in the father's house. And so he left. And his father didn't supply him with anything, didn't support him while he was out indulging his flesh. His father didn't transfer him money, didn't send him care packages in the mail to help him keep pursuing his flesh. But what did his father do? His father went up on the roof of their house every day and looked to see is today the day that my son is going to come back home. Why? Because the father knew that his son had to get his fill because he wasn't going to listen to anyone who told him it was a bad idea. He had to play out his wrong desires until he got sick of what they inevitably brought into his life. And most of you know the story. The son reached that point. He hit rock bottom. He came face to face with the emptiness of living for the flesh. He found himself alone, exhausted, depleted in every way, feeding pigs for a living and craving the food that they were eating. And in that place, he repented and returned home. What happened? His flesh had been destroyed. How do we know? Because what was his posture when he returned home? What was his attitude like? I'm sorry, Father, I've blown it so badly. Would you allow me to come home and and just be one of the servants in your house? How do you know his flesh was destroyed? Because he was repentant. And how does the father respond? He embraces him, he welcomes him home, he throws a huge party and he says, don't worry about the past, forget about it. You're home now. You've always been my son and you always will be. You see, that's the picture, that's the plan, that's the process that Paul is laying out for the Corinthian church when he says, if this guy wants to indulge his flesh, doesn't wanna walk in the spirit, let him go have it, but he has to leave. You cannot let him do that and then support him along the way by checking in on him, having coffee with him, having lunch with him, sending emails. You can't do that. You've got to let him completely go and get his fill. Your goal is not to encourage him so that it takes him even longer to realize the emptiness of this. Your goal is to cut him off completely from all the benefits of being part of the family of God so that he can realize quickly that this is horrible and I miss it. Like the father, it's all to be done in love. And as strange as it sounds, we're to turn that person over to Satan because we want what's best for them. Not what they think is best for them. Just like an addict can't tell you what is best for them. But what the Lord says is best for them. What is actually best for them. And if you know of a person in this situation, Matthew 18. I put the references, you can look them up later on your outline. Matthew 18 tells us that we should confront them in love 
one-on-one, discreetly, just you and them. It says if they won't listen or they won't repent, we're to go back and do it again with one or two mature believers with us. If they still won't listen, we're to take the elders, pastors of the church who will implement Paul's instructions if that person still refuses to repent. Know this too, that the issue we're confronting in this person's life, it has to be clear in the scriptures. It has to be clear in the scriptures. There must be something in the Bible that we can point to as the issue that we're concerned about. It can't just be an opinion we have. We can't just say, hey, listen, man, I, uh, I heard you're planning on voting for Trudeau, so I'm turning you over to Satan. You can't do that. They're not violating scripture. It's got to actually be in the word. That's not in the Bible. So write this down. The, the, the issue or the sin, it must be confronted with scripture. So we've got to be able to go to them and say, here's the thing. This is what the word says. And I'm seeing this in your life right now, that, that you are not walking in agreement with the word of God. The Bible says you're to lay down your life for your family. You're not doing that. The Bible says you're to be faithful to your wife. You're not doing that. The Bible says that it's wrong to steal. You should not be stealing the way you're doing. You've got to have the word behind you as you go to it. So otherwise, it's just you judging them rather than the word of God. Last thing in 1 Corinthians 5, in, in verse 5, Paul says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now what Paul is saying in that phrase that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus is, is serious. And I've heard some pastors try and say, oh, it's not talking about salvation. But it is. It is. And, and I'll tell you why I believe that. Both the epistles of Galatians and James make it clear that the fruit of the spirit in the life of the believer is the evidence that they are a believer. It's the evidence that they are a believer. And both of those epistles make the point that if there's no fruit, and if in fact there's the opposite, if in fact you can see the works of the flesh in their life rather than the fruit of the spirit, if a person is consistently walking in the flesh instead of the spirit, then that conversely is evidence that they're not saved. When Paul tells the church to excommunicate a person because they're unrepentantly living in sin, he's also doing this. He's telling the church, by doing this, you are letting that person know based on your attitude and actions, we as the church can no longer affirm the fact that you are saved. If you come to me and you say, hey, Pastor Jeff, am I saved? I can no longer tell you yes. I believe that you're saved. It's that serious. Now they may still be saved, but based on the evidence that we can evaluate as the church, we're saying that we can't affirm the fact that they're saved in their current state because there's, there's no fruit that we can point to as evidence. And God's word tells us that we're supposed to hold each other accountable in that way. Now this is not to be unloving. This is because there is no issue more serious than where you or I will spend eternity. There's no issue more serious than our salvation. There's no issue more serious than whether or not we're right with God. And excommunication is also meant to scare that person into realizing, hey, there's nothing in your life right now that indicates you're saved. Why do you think you're saved? There's no evidence in your life right now. And I know that's scary, but that's the point. That's the point. Heaven forbid that out of fear we do the opposite and tell someone they're right with God when there's clear evidence in their life that they're not. 
How selfish would that be? Well, we met the blundering believer, then we met the boasting backslider. And finally in James 5, if you want to turn there, James 5.19, we're going to meet the bewitched believer. James 5, 19 through 20, make a note of this, it refers to the bewitched believer. We've got the blundering believer, the boasting backslider, and now the bewitched believer. This is the believer who has embraced heresy, some unbiblical teaching that's not part of Orthodox Christianity. You might recall in chapter three of Galatians, uh, Paul was writing to the Galatians because they were embracing the heresy of works-based salvation. And he famously says to them, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? He's telling them that they departed from the truth and become bewitched, beguiled, enchanted by some false teaching. And last week we talked about how heresy is actually one of the works of the flesh that Paul listed in Galatians 5. It's a work of the flesh because the desire to embrace heresy comes from that part of us that wants to feel like we have some special insight, some secret knowledge, something that's too high for most people to perceive, but we perceive it. We've got what the Greeks would call gnosis, that secret knowledge. So how do we respond to the bewitched believer? Well, in James 5.19, we read this. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So what James says here is he says, listen, you need to go talk with the believer who's caught up in heresy. You need to go with them with the word of God and show them the truth in the scriptures because if you do, you'll save them from death. Spiritual death or, or, or even physical death. Spiritual death in the sense that if they continue in this heresy, they're gonna stop walking in the spirit because they won't be walking in agreement with God. They're gonna stop bearing fruit. They're gonna stop being an effective witness for the Lord. They're gonna stop living the spirit-filled life. They're gonna miss out on the blessings of God in this life. They might still be saved, but they're gonna experience spiritual death in this life. Physical death in the sense that the Bible actually teaches that God sometimes steps in and ends the life of a believer early if they're caught up in heresy and trying to bring other people into it, or if they're caught up in sin and causing other believers to stumble, incredibly the Bible actually says that God will sometimes step in. They're a believer, but God says, you're coming to heaven early because you're just causing too much damage in the church right now, so we gotta get you out of there. We're to talk to this confused brother or sister just the way that Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter three, and we're to simply remind them, hey, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, then it's not new. So we have three different types of situations, three different scenarios where someone in the church needs to be confronted over what they're doing or believing. Because if we love someone, we will do what is best for us. We'll do what is easiest for us. No, if, if we love someone, we'll do what's best for them, no matter what it costs us even if it means them storming off and accusing us of not understanding, not caring, being judgmental, even if it's difficult, we'll care enough about them to let them know the truth. 
That means that we won't let them charge headfirst into believing lies and living a lifestyle that we know is going to bring devastating natural consequences into their life. It means we won't take a chance on their salvation just so we can avoid an awkward conversation. But we need to be clear in understanding the differences between each of these three scenarios so that we can respond the right way, the helpful way. You see, you cannot go about trying to restore someone who's unrepentant. There cannot be any restoration without repentance. If they won't repent, the remedy is not restoration, it's actually excommunication. If the person is caught up in a wrong belief, a heresy, then you're to go and talk to them about it. And so here's what this means, even with the last person, you go to the heretic and, and you talk to them and you show them in the word of God and they say, well, I see that, but I, 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 I'm just not gonna do that. Hey, hey, guess what? Then they're not just the bewitched believer, now they're the intentionally sinning believer. They're the bragging backslider. And so you've got to apply the right remedy to the right situation to actually be helpful. And we're thankful that the word of God tells us what to do. In every situation, we follow Matthew 18's instructions. We go to them one-on-one. -on -one. If they won't listen, we go with one or two mature believers again. If they still won't listen, we go to the elders or the pastors of the church. In every situation, we confront them with gentleness as we would have someone else confront us remembering that it could just as easily be us who's in error in the future. And whatever issue we raise, it's to be done on the basis of the word of God, not our own feelings, not our own opinion. So in conclusion, if you know someone who falls into one of the three scenarios, love them enough to want what's best for them. Don't just sit there all the time and say, man, hope somebody talks to them. It's definitely not going to be me, but I hope someone does. See if the Lord would have you be that person. If you genuinely care about them. Ask the Lord what he would have you do. And then seek to please the Lord. Not the person you're going to. You're not seeking their approval. You're seeking the Lord's approval. Lastly, if when you look at yourself honestly, you realize that in your life, you're constantly moving back and forward between feelings of inferiority and superiority. So you're constantly seeking to compete with people and look down on people, and then the next moment, you're feeling inferior to people and you're envying people. Or if you find yourself camped out in one of those two places, you need to get your identity rooted in Jesus because he wants to free you from that because it's a miserable way to live and it poisons all of your relationships. And you gotta find your identity in Jesus before you can start living in the freedom of the gospel. And when you do that, then suddenly you begin to enjoy your relationships on a completely different level. Because you don't need other people to give you your worth. You don't get all your satisfaction in life by taking advantage of people. Everything becomes more healthy. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the wisdom of your word, Lord God. Thank you for the practical help of your word. Thank you that it tells us how to love other people well, how to have relationships that are healthy. But Lord, your word is, it's a two-edged sword dividing even between soul and spirit, God. It gets right down into our, our deepest motivations, into our insecurities. And Father, I thank you that you care so much about us, that you bring up this stuff in your word. You care so much about us that 
you want us to be emotionally healthy in this life. You want us to have healthy relationships in this life. You want us to be free of insecurity, free of feelings of inferiority and the the toxic feelings of superiority. You want all that good for us now in this life, in our relationships. So thank you for loving us that way. Father, I pray for for any of us, if we're not finding our identity in you to, to a large degree or a small degree, Lord, would you root us and ground us even this evening in who we are in you, that we're sons and daughters of the living God, that we're loved by you, that we are cared for by you, that we are guided by your spirit, and we have everything we need in you. And I pray even in this time of worship, Lord, that you would just touch any among us who who struggle to believe that we can really get all we need from you. For the one who struggles to believe that, that you can really provide joy, would you just give it in an overflowing measure this evening? Would you give peace, Lord? Would you give rest? Would you give strength, God, as only you can? Would you, would you show yourself to be God in our midst this evening, Lord? Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.